Any of you read long ago, I'm revealing my age, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Okay, then you know the meaning of life, right? 42. Have you ever pondered the meaning of life? I'm not sure it's 42, but uh, that's what I want to talk about today, life. The sermon's, uh, it's too big. Its title is life. Uh, what's the meaning of life? If it isn't 42, what do you think? Have you ever thought about it? I'm sure you have. Anyone want to share? It's a big question. I'm going to show there's a little answer, but go ahead. No? Survival. Survival. That's part of it, isn't it? On one basis, one definition of life, survival's big and can't be discounted. Anything else? To love and be loved. To love and be loved. I'll buy in on that one. To take care of the earth. To take care of the earth. That's part of the loving and being loved. <laughs> if we don't love it, Sometimes it doesn't love back very well. Which means, let's give thanks for the rain. Uh, may it rain while we're here. Okay. Uh, as, as is my habit, I'm doing a quilting of scriptures today. Um, I'm not a good Methodist. I'm just not. I've tried. Um, I, I can't do a proof text. Uh, to me, one verse is not scripture because there are too many verses out there and you can make most anything happen by grabbing one. So I like to quilt them together to see if they support each other and, and make some kind of whole. I also am not a very good Methodist today because this sermon is definitely not a Wesleyan sermon. It doesn't have much emotion to it. Uh, it it's not very personal. I come from a tradition grounded in the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, and we like reason a lot. And I think in this time, reason is, is an important thing. There's plenty of emotion out there. I'm going to read first from John 3. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. He's talking to Nicodemus who says, how can I be born again? I'm from above. He thinks that the word has two definitions, the, the Greek word. It can mean above or it can mean born again. And Nicodemus hears it as born again in his mother's womb. He can't do it. And Jesus goes on to say, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The Spirit. In John, we read in chapter 11 these words, I am the resurrection and life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And in Galatians, Paul says, 
Live by the Spirit, I say. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And also from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I think there's a connection among these, and I'll explore that. But I begin with these words. You know them. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, and that's what they meant, are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I dealt with liberty a year ago. I'm talking about life today, and next Sunday I'm going to talk about happiness. Tomorrow, we celebrate the 246th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And what a wonderful thing it is to think that the dreams of those men in Philadelphia those many years ago are still alive and being translated from dream into lived experience. It's been a long journey, and we must still be active and vigilant as we work to make this a more perfect union a more perfect union, something to work hard for in a time of considerable division and fragmentation. As I look at this task, I wonder what people of the way, Jesus and the early Christians, might say to bring that task to bear. And that's what I want to explore today. In order to give focus to that exploration, I shall keep my eyes only on one word in the Declaration, and that word is life and its relationship to New Testament Christianity. It's a word that stirs considerable conflict among us. Life, unalienable right endowed upon us by our Creator. What is it, that thing called life? Because of the controversy swirling around us right now, I want to begin by sharing some information, this is the reason part of it, about how both the major religions of the world and contemporary science understand the beginning of something called life. A quick summary of the world religions. Hinduism, life begins before conception. All my life's a circle, right? Until you finally are able to break through and attain Atman. 
Buddhism. Life begins when in the mother's womb, the first sitta arises. That is to say, when first consciousness manifests itself. They don't seem to think it's there at the beginning. At some point, consciousness. And of course, for Buddhism, consciousness is what it's all about. Judaism, starting in Genesis, life is breath. And life begins with the first breath, because that's when the Spirit of God comes in. It's celebrated eight days out because they're never quite sure in those first days you're going to take a second breath. So the eighth day is the naming day. Islam. There's a continuum of the notion of life that runs from conception through, and I love this word, through insolment to actual birth. And all the stages are valued, but the most valuable is the moment of insolment. I don't know how much it's like or different from the Buddhist notion of sitta, of consciousness. Christianity, we'll explore that today from a New Testament perspective, but suffice it to say that there are several different answers to that question among Christians. Ranging from the moment of conception to the gasp of the first breath, with many demarcations of viable human life in between. The main takeaway <coughs> for me from these beliefs, and they're probably somewhat oversimplified definitions, is that there is not a consensus among the major world religions about when life begins. Given this lack of consensus, I offer a word of advice from the Constitution. The First Amendment reminds us Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. As the debate of life continues in this country, we must hold fast to our Constitution and not make one religious definition preferable and exclusionary to the others. I think that's important wisdom for us. There is a danger here that theocracy could raise itself up and proclaim what amounts to a state or established religion. So the debate has theological dimensions to it of some importance and also con constitutional importance. A very brief summary of science and what science thinks about why life begins there's the same diversity among scientists that there is among world religions. Uh, and as we look at that, again, very quickly, uh, there are scientists who want to say that life begins uh, with the fertilization process, conception. But modern science tells us that that is not something that goes boom. It takes about 20, 20 24 hours for the egg and sperm to finally meld with each other. And then if you want to talk about the beginning of life, you've got a new set of DNA over there. And that's what some want to talk about. And for various reasons. Depends on what the scientist is studying. 
what their interests are, I think, as to what they set forth. There are others who think that life begins not with the creation of the zygote, uh, because there's a problem there. For about two weeks, that zygote is capable of twinning. And so if it's capable of being two people, how can it be one? And so those people are interested in that matter, and they would say, you know, you can't say that life begins until two weeks out. There are others who say that it occurs when the embryo actually attaches to the uterus. And individuation is complete. There's now one, one being, or maybe twins, you know. Another landmark is about eight weeks out when the embryo has developed versions of basic organ systems. But it's not around until around the 20th week that that process is such that with all the medical care we can give, you might have a viable being outside the womb. So you got that whole spectrum. Neuroscience comes into this and stresses that period of 20 to 25 weeks out when you finally have a nervous system that's connected and able to actually process feeling. And the neuroscientists say there's really no feeling until that part of the brain is activated. There may be motions and things like that, but what we call real feeling is about 20, 27 weeks out. So science just leaves us with all of that on the table. Uh, and the kind of scientific overview is that <clears throat> the beginning of life is a on a continuum. You can argue about one point or another, but there's a continuum and there are different things you can say about life and different stages on that. And probably we ought to pay some attention to the science and to the religions. Uh, but I think we need to know that there's not a clear consensus in religion or science on this matter. Um, now, what about the followers of the way? What about Jesus and the followers of the way? What do they suggest about life in the flesh and when it begins? They're not much interested in when life in the flesh begins. For the reason that life to them was of the spirit and not of the flesh. Paul states this clearly in Galatians 5. Live by the Spirit, I say. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit. And what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. Paul's idea is derived from the teaching of Jesus. Here Jesus' lesson from Nicodemus. I read it earlier. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. So for Jesus, in a sense, he's staying in the Jewish tradition, isn't he? Life begins after that breath. But that's not it either. It's after the breath of the Spirit is in you. So the definition of life 
in the Christian community is somewhat different than what we usually talk about. And there's no, nothing wrong with talking about life in the world of science and the other religions and the political world that we're in now, but I think it's also helpful to reground ourselves in this world that Paul and Jesus talk about. Jesus said to Nicodemus, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born, this is when it happens, of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above. And I guess what I want to say rather quickly is that it's important for us as Christians to not let loose of the notion that we need to spend a lot of time developing spiritual discipline. We don't spend much on that. That is not an emphasis in our culture. But we're asked to be born of the Spirit, born from above. And if we fight all of our fights over the born of the flesh, uh, and we aren't grounded also in this born of the Spirit, I think something's missing from our discussion. That passage was translated as you must be born again in the King James Version. And we know there are Christians who only read the King James Version. And if they want to get their doctors from 1610, that's fine. Uh, I don't know why they want to get their translators there, but they don't want their doctors from there. Uh, we know a lot more about Greek and the surrounding languages now, Aramaic in particular, than they did. They, by the way, wrote better prose than most of us right now. And that's why it's so beautiful to ring the King James. This is the time of Shakespeare. And he wasn't alone in being a master of prose at that time. So it's beautiful writing, but it's not always the best translation. Just like the doctors, we're not always the best doctors, unless you like leeches. <laughs> but a lot of people have seen this as born again, and that leads to a certain kind of Christianity um, that leaves out this birth into life of the spirit. It is a spiritual truth that we need to have spiritual birth. This life in the spirit that lies at the heart of Jesus' definition of life. And from his perspective, to exist in the flesh does not automatically make one alive. Jesus puts it this way, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. This is a different kind of life, isn't it? In Christ, even though you die, you live. Because we live in the resurrection, in the risen Christ. This is spiritual stuff. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense in a science lab. But in the life of prayer, it makes a great deal of sense. And it's the gift that we have. And that life is special. Paul says, as I said earlier, if I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Outside of the life of love, one lives a zombie existence and is a prisoner of the flesh. I've often wondered in the last decade or so when zombie 
television became so popular? If that was a reflection of our spiritual state, that, that we, we sort of caught it, that yeah, there's a lot of the living dead around us. They've been born of the flesh, but they haven't born of love. They haven't been born of love. To put on the mind of Christ, to be made open to the Spirit, is to have life, life eternal, life abundant, and to have it now. As we live life in the Spirit, we enter God's kingdom now. We dwell fully in the grace of love now, and we can know now how to eat the fruits of the Spirit Paul provides specifics about life that is love, true life, along the true way into the heart of God. He tells us, I read it earlier, love is patient. This is sort of a checklist, this and what I'm going to share from Galatians, for our own spiritual devotion, spiritual exercise. How are we doing in love? These are the characteristics of love. Patient, how you doing? Kind, how are you doing? Not envious or boastful or arrogant, how are you doing? Or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. How are you doing? It is not irritable. I fail. It keeps no record of wrongs. I learned my father kept records. And he had lists of who did what. And he kept records. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never ends. And in a new way of giving us a checklist in Galatians when he writes about life in the Spirit, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And then he gives us a sort of checklist of behaviors. Patience, it's back there again. Must be important. How's patience doing? Kindness, it's back there again. We have not created a culture of kindness. In fact, I'd say in the last 30 or 40 years, kindness has been seen as weakness. But it's stupid if you're kind. You'll get run over. Generosity. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Boy, you don't want to be like that. And you will get bulldozed. Self-control. Don't throw things against walls. <laughs> and in these two passages, Paul provides us with words to check against the way we are currently walking in the world. Are we walking in the way of love? Are we choosing life in the spirit? Or are we zombies, content? to think the way of the flesh is truth and life. And Jesus said to us, I 
am the way, truth, and life. In our current debate on the nature of life, as we engage in political activity, I call us to anchor all we say and do in the way, in love, the way of Jesus, who is truth and who is life. Amen.